Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry experts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez, to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the reality of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your hosts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez. Hey, everybody, Joe here. This is the second podcast in our new series, Five Questions, which is asking at least five questions from people across the specialty. Today, Matt Mazurik, we've had him on the show before. He became known to us because of his position out of the blue on supporting full practice in the state of Arizona. And he was a leader, a chief of staff at a notable hospital, a leader in a private practice group. Came out of the blue. It was very nice. And uh, we got to know him, and he's just really a great guy. He is a UCSF graduate for his uh, doctorate of medicine and his anesthesia residency, spent a number of years in private practice. He worked for Envision, worked for the kind of what we call the big box groups, and then switched over to academia and now is a professor of anesthesiology at Yale. I spoke to him about burnout, about working for private equity, and uh, about why he is able to avoid burnout. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to Anesthesia Deconstructed. I have a very special guest, Dr. Matt Mazurk. Great, great to have you on again, man. I'm really, I'm really excited to hear from you. Thanks for being on. No, Joe, thank you. I'm honored to be back. You know, it was it was nearly four years ago in 2019 when I interviewed with Mike McKinnon about yep. my article that is now, well, dare I say it's six plus years <laughs> old. It was April of 2017 yeah. when I wrote that article about the history of, you know, anesthesia from a CRNA perspective. And, you know, frankly, mm-hmm. I've had to ignore a lot of negativity on one level from mm. a few individuals. But, you know, by and large, I think it's been really positive. I, I think that that article highlighted highlighted my attitude about what's currently going on in anesthesia. And mm-hmm. I think it also highlights what what's needed for the future for anesthesia care. I'm not going to say CRNA care, anesthesia MD care. I'm just going sure. to see what say what our patients actually need from us collectively. And that that's that's what uh, that's what it's all about. So I I appreciate how you phrase that because Rather than working from a position of what's good for me as an individual, right, or me as a profession, it's what's good for this patient, this human being that we're trying to get the best possible outcome. Right. And how do we do Absolutely. that in a reasonable way? Like work backwards from that, and then look, you know, right. let the chips fall where they may. Um, well, we're, thing, we're gonna, I mean, yeah, go, go ahead, ahead, please. No, I mean, uh, as a physician, I'm patient focused. That's all I care about. Mm-hmm. The rest is noise. And that's why I think I'm not burned out because every day I approach work with the same attitude that um, I'm, I'm not here. The patients are not interested in who I am or what I am mm-hmm. or where I trained or anything else. They want to know, do I care? Am I trained to do a good job? Sure. And am I compassionate? And do I connect? At the end of the day, that's all patients care about. Period. Yeah, indeed. There's, they, they don't care about my titles. They don't care that I was magna cum laude at Fresno State with an English degree. They don't care I went to UCSF. They don't care about any of the credentials or other letters after my name. They want to know, am I going to be safe? Do you care? And am I, am I going to get through this with the best possible outcome? That, and that's the bottom line. Be laser focused on that. 
And all the rest is, like I said, it's just noise and no one else cares either. So indeed. Indeed. And that's I've yeah. I've learned that in the past few years working with administrators. They primarily they want something that's cost yes. effective, that's you know, not anything too outside the norm. They don't want to be the first necessarily in anything. Right. They just want something that really works and so we can get back to uh, taking care of the rest of their problems. But just for the context for the audience, I think it was back in twenty eighteen. Uh, I was going to end on this, but we'll start here. You wrote this historical right. article, which was article, which was very well written. And in that it was spontaneous. I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't know uh, on a professional basis, many CRNAs at that point, like you weren't working with CRNAs in your practice, correct? Correct. Right. When I was with uh, Southern Arizona anesthesia down in Tucson, we had no CRNAs. I mean, I had right. no contact for 12 years. But And I, I I, you were the chief of staff there, correct? I was both uh, chair of anesthesia at St. Mary's there in Tucson, and then mm-hmm. I was elected to be chief of staff in 2015. Okay, so very good. So I was in... in I think that's what that adding that context to that uh, article you wrote at, you know, adds a lot of meaning, right? Because you were... And look, uh, our group, uh, has a lot of, you know, obviously we have the contract at St. Mary's, so your reputation precedes you. You had a very positive reputation amongst the administrators and staff. So uh, during that uh, regulatory battle, so to speak, to use that word in metaphor format, it was very controversial. A lot of people had a lot of emotion around it. You you wrote that opinion. You didn't necessarily, I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, on the front page of uh, AZ Central or anything like that, but it became known. Um, right. Why? Why did you do that? Why did you uh, write the article? That is what inspired I'll your t- interest. I'll, well, I'll tell you know, I'll as an all MD leader, to write about those things. I wrote about that because, believe it or not, I had interviewed in 2016 with Minnesota Gastroenterology for a directorship to uh, basically lead CRNAs in Minnesota who were independently practicing at the time, mm. because Minnesota is one of the opt-out states. And I was denied the directorship and the chair, the chair of human resources called me up after the second interview and said, you know, Dr. Mazur, we love you. We think you're great, but you haven't had enough interaction with CRNAs. We don't know mm-hmm. that because you're coming from an all MDA group for 12 years, if we can trust that you're going to create a positive environment that's supportive of this type of model where I did the pre-ops and they did, you know, the CRNAs did the cases at all these ambulatory surgical centers, uh, despite my efforts to try to convince them that I had positive experiences when I was a resident with CRNAs at Mount Zion Hospital and at San Francisco General Hospital when I was a trainee 20 years ago, it just simply didn't matter. I had a dozen years Mm -hmm. as an MD anesthesiologist and they had another candidate who would work with CRNAs and who could speak to the fact that they would be willing to work with them. And all I had was an empty promise, basically, because I hadn't worked with CRNAs for a yeah, dozen They were looking years. for, you know, that right. level of experience. Yeah, right. I think now, the, iron, the irony is they went through two directors. Mm-hmm. And now they finally found someone uh, <laughs> who, who kind of, you know, fits whatever it is that they need to fit. So... And for some reason, I was also destined to go to Minnesota because I ended up yeah. there eventually. A year a year later, I was there in Minnesota. So it, the the irony is interesting on on all multiple levels. It's like I was destined to go from Arizona to Minnesota as a pit stop uh, to what I'm right. doing today. Right. Uh, indeed, and and where you're at today, I mentioned it in the intro, but. I think your perspective is unique because you've been in private practice, you've been in facility leadership, you've worked for the large private equity owned group like Envision and right. worked yes. in what uh, like a there's lots of different words for it, but a collaborative environment. And now you're in at Yale, right? Which is a pure right. well, I'm not sure if pure is the right word, but truly an academic environment, which is you know from an anesthesia modeling point of view very different from everything else you've experienced how i mean does i can't imagine this article is coming up but how has that experience informed your 
current role at Yale? Well, I mean, my the fact that I'm at Yale is an accident because I had a cold call from a recruiter <laughs> and I had just signed a contract to work at, uh, you know, the large health system in the Midwest. And there were a series of events that had occurred after I signed my contract with that company or with the organization that uh, kind of primed a pump for me to be open to new opportunities. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, COVID, of course, has had a tremendous impact on everyone in healthcare. And uh, Envision lost the contract with my organization in the middle of COVID. So now in the middle, in the summer of 2020, I'm applying for a new job. I mean, imagine in the middle of a pandemic, you don't know what's going to happen. So you cast your net broad and wide. So anyway, at the end of the day, at that point, a tremendous uncertainty and, and nothing was mm-hmm. really working out because, and because of COVID, I, I don't know that I was getting the truth from some organizations and whatnot. I was familiar with what was going on where I was. So I decided to stay put, but I also, you know, had some stipulations as to far as, uh, am I going to get an administrative day a week? Am I going to get this? Am I going to get that? And, you know, when I signed on four or five months in, a lot of these verbal promises uh, really weren't being honored. So I became open to the possibility of, of moving on. And I got a cold call from uh, one of the recruiters for Yale. And she basically said, hey, are you interested in going to Yale? I said, I'm game. So I did a Zoom call, did a little research. And what's interesting is... <laughs> I did the Zoom call from 4.30 p.m. to about 5.36 p.m. on a Tuesday. I'll never forget this. And at 7, 7.30 that night, I got a phone call back and said, uh, they're really interested in having you come join the Yale faculty. Mm-hmm. And and uh, uh, I told my wife, I said, I think we're moving to New Haven. And she said, really? We're going to go to Yale? I said, yeah, we're, we're out of here, uh, if you're okay with it. And... <laughs> So the rest is history. So I've been here for two years at Yale, and uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying my experience here. It's a it's a wonderful place, and I get to teach every day pretty much. Uh, I'm surrounded by a lot of talent and students, and it, it's just a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, I want to. You've had a really varied uh, background. You were a physics teacher initially before medicine, correct? Um, I've been a lot of things. So Mm -hmm. I was originally a physics major. Yes. I switched two years into my degree to English literature and poetry writing. Okay. Those two are definitely the same. Correct. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Right. Uh, no, I had major kidney surgery and my wife was a unit secretary in the ICU at St. Agnes in Fresno. So I heard Mm -hmm. all these really cool stories about medical, medical patients and my dad almost went blind in 1982. And that was the first time I thought about becoming a physician. Mm-hmm. So after I had my kidney surgery, I was desperate for work. There was a one ad in the paper for what we call a living skills instructor for the developmentally disabled with Good Shepherd Lutheran Homes in Fresno. So I took a job full time working with the lowest functioning home in the entire system within Good Shepherd. Most of my, uh, most of the residents were nonverbal. They needed a lot of help. Mm-hmm. Took them to doctor's visits. Became interested in medicine between that and my wife. After I earned my degree in English in creative writing, I thought, well, how am I going to put food on the table? And then I just kind of thought about anesthesia and uh, becoming a ah. physician. And um, decided to go back after I earned my degree after five years and went back and took courses in, you know, organic chem, chem biology. Sure, all the prereqs. So seven years of undergraduate work and I applied to med school and got my dream shot into UCSF. And the rest is history. Right right away, first year, I said, I'm going to do anesthesia. And so everyone said, well, how do you know? I said... Well, what else combines physiology, machines, procedures, 
sure. getting to be in the operating room and do really cool stuff and uh, make a big difference at the end of the day. I mean, at the the bottom line is, with, as an anesthesiologist or a CRNA, there's there's very little, there's not much in medicine at the end of the day where you walk out the door and you've done a series of cases and you've had such a tremendous impact on someone's life instantly. It, it's not delayed. It's instant. And it's awesome. And it's an incredible feeling on a daily basis to walk out and know, I made a difference today. Tomorrow, I get to make a difference. Friday, I get to make a difference. The next week, I get to make a difference. And it's just awesome. You know, I want to dive so. deeper on this idea of making a difference because I think, uh, you know, when you look at the provider or the professional satisfaction surveys, both for physicians right. and CRNAs compared to the peers, generally anesthesia is sure. much, much higher. And, and you write a lot about burnout, right? Burnout. Right and how to handle it if i guess the question that occurs to me is if we're making such a big difference on an everyday basis why are we seeing and i don't have any data on this but why does it seem like we're seeing so much burnout everywhere in healthcare but at, on a local level certainly i've seen it in anesthesia currently why uh, right. i guess yeah why do you think we're seeing that so much in anesthesia I think the predominant reasons are loss of autonomy, loss of respect, and loss of agency and control. You know, since the passage of the High Tech Act and Obamacare nearly 13 years ago, that that was the that was the difference. There was, well, there, and there just was for the, the sake of the audience, what is the High Tech Act? Well, the High Tech Act basically stated that you know EMR was going to become the the, the wave of the future. The the uh, electronic medical record was going to be the way we communicate, the way we store our data, et cetera, et cetera. No one knew at the time that the implications of that were going to be. On average, I did I did this up in uh, Minnesota one day. I said, you know what? How many clicks? Do I have to go through to do a pre-op? It was 350 mm -hmm. clicks. Are you serious? Okay. That sounds clicks. dreadful. That sounds like, oh my and God. And I'm talking about I'm talking about text entries, click boxes, right. the whole shebang. Just the just the, mm -hmm. the the formal writing on a typewriter, etc. I developed mm -hmm. carpal tunnel syndrome. Now, partially that's because I did a master's degree and wrote 2,000 pages. But my okay. left my left index finger is finally recovering from it without surgery because I'm not clicking as much. Um, so I, I think I think what happened was it, it, it all of a sudden what what I used to do on pen and paper in two three minutes became a ten minute clickathon, hmm. and uh, the software the software engineers at Epic, Cerner, McKesson, Meditech. Mm -hmm big names, they don't think about what we have to do in the work environment. So I, I think what happened is that it dehumanizes you, you know? And so when I'm pre-oping my patients, for example, I, if I have a computer on wheels, I try to orient that thing so that my screen is facing the patient so that I can get as much eye contact with them as possible. Yeah, so like a normal it, human it, it, being it, would. Right. Exactly. So I, I, the electronic medical record has separated our residents, our interns, and our physicians because we can remotely access this information hmm. from our patients and from our colleagues. We're, we're in a siloed box at a, at a workstation. We can be anywhere on our phone or tablet, whatever it might be. And that reduces us to being data entry clerks. That's not what we signed we, up for. No, it's not. It's the it's like going back to that, that satisfaction, right? Making a difference. That's right. that's what people get in for. That's what people Absolutely. take the financial right. risk and the pain of education, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, in this stage of your career, would you where would you put burnout as far as your uh, if you had a priority list or things you're you're really interested in? Uh, it, does burnout make the top three? Uh, absolutely. It's been a passion of mine for um, at least eight years. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah that, well, it's good timing with, with COVID and whatnot. Uh, with burnout, what is something either locally or systemically, one or both, 
reform, something different uh, that you would like to see? Again, either at the local level uh, or at the broader level, what comes to mind when we're talking about addressing burnout in a competent, effective way? Well, I think it's important to understand that shifting the blame onto the individual in this environment is patently unfair because the you know this this was not a topic burnout was not a topic 35 years ago 30 years ago it wasn't even really a topic 23 years ago when i was a resident um so something has dramatically changed so what's dramatically changed uh what's dramatically changed is most physicians are now employed um, there's a record amount of prior authorizations and denials. There has been an erosion in both uh, compensation and the amount of respect for all healthcare providers across the board. And all of this has paralleled two things the increasing number of middlemen, administrators, and the corporatization of medicine which has basically dehumanized what we do and also devalued what we bring to the table because most of us in healthcare, physicians, nurses, CRNAs, PAs, NPs, everyone involved, we have, for the most part, and there are exceptions, an altruistic view. We want to serve our fellow human being in, uh, in a caring, compassionate, empathic way. Well, corporate medicine is just like any other business. It's about making money. That's it. So our rise in burnout has paralleled that uh, that trans it's that transformation of what medicine once was. So could you I wanna uh, dive a little bit deeper on that aspect of things because you know, I, I think we were having a conversation on LinkedIn where uh, I said something about compensation and someone commented that you know, physicians are making too much money. And I responded by saying, well, you, you can't, you know, everyone needs to act in a normal economic way. Uh, we all need to earn a living. <laughs> Certainly nothing wrong with that. But right. could you differentiate what your experience as a private practice guy, right? Somebody who was a, a leader and long-term member of a private group. And invariably, the, the purpose of a private entity or one of the purposes has to have an operate, operating margin, right? So you have more control and autonomy over that practice versus the private equity stuff. Because I think when you talk about the corporatization of medicine and making money, it sounds like you're referring more to the private equity end of things, not to your previous experience. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a big difference between working for private equity and working for yourself. Because there's pride of ownership. If, if, if you, you know, I was a shareholder in a private practice, and I took pride in the fact that what my work did reflected our group, re- reflected what I did. And, you know, even though I was, you know, member of 82, you know, with, with 82 colleagues, you know, my work was reflective of me. It was reflective of my organization, of which I was valued. And mm-hmm. when you're a part of private equity and you're a part of a big corporation, now you're part of thousands. And mm-hmm. to be honest with you, you have no voice. You have no agency. You have no autonomy. You, 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 are, you are literally a cork on the ocean. So the, at, the, at the end of the day, it's like, well, who cares? If you leave, there's a thousand other corks in the ocean and we can also get another cork to replace you. So mm-hmm. that alone kind of contributes to the idea that you're no longer valued. And the the, the problem with private equity and a lot of the organizations that, have, that, that came into a lot of healthcare systems, they came in with slick presentations and PowerPoints and, you know, they, they brought their dog and pony show to the tables with a lot of promises at the end of the day, and they weren't able to fulfill them. And they left the uh, local groups kind of hanging out to dry. And yep. so... <clears throat> You know, it, it's 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 and this has happened on a scale across the United States. Uh, obviously, um, you know, over the last decade plus, 
on multiple levels. And I, the thing is, what the local hospitals and what a lot of the even the larger, um, you know, hospital organizations have, have failed to realize is when you employ or contract with the local group, they are, in, they are as invested in the success of that hospital as they are. When you have a corporation who can afford to lose that business because they have better business elsewhere, where's the value? I mean, that that's at the end of the day, oh, okay, well, we're losing this 1% business of our, of our whole pie. Who cares? Whereas those local physicians, CRNAs, nurses, et cetera, whoever's employed by whatever private equity is in that location, Oh, we've lost 1% of our pie. Well, we'll make it up over here because we're going to get 3% extra over here by taking, sure. you know, somebody from here and, and, and moving them over there. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's a massive chess game, if you will. And I think there are a lot of players who have failed to underestimate the, the importance of people who are locally involved and invested. I think it's interesting that you're drawing a parallel or a connection between provider burnout, generally not feeling good, right? About uh, not feeling as good as healthcare professionals used to feel and uh, right. increase in private equity. And I, and not to, uh, you know, there's no one from private equity here, right? But I, I think there's probably a differentiation with the, the, the groups that are out there because values drive decisions. So there's a difference between Vanguard and, you know, the, the shysty financial management, even though they're both in financial services, right? Right. Um, right. No, correct. Yeah. And just to add clarity, when you said thousands, uh, I think it's important to note that those thousands are are not clinicians, right? Because if you were in a group of 82, you probably only had a small piece of ownership of the group itself. But when you're talking about thousands, you're talking about, you know, Envision is, I think it's a publicly traded company. Am I, am I correct? Well, it, it, it once was until, you know, KKR bought them out, which was That's private right. then equity. They went back private you know, again. I mean, yeah. I mean oh, of course, you know, yeah. Envision was formed by, you know, a combination of what it was, it Amsurge and uh, Sheridan uh, and right. MCARE, you know. So, you know, the, the bottom line is you've got a large emergency physician group, MCARE, and a large anesthesia group, Sheridan merging together under the auspices of, you know, forming Envision and then Envision was created and then Envision was, you know, its own private publicly traded company and then private equity kind of entered into the deal. But I I, I think it's really important to understand the fact that the surprise billing was the secret sauce of the whole deal. And Mm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's the dirty little secret behind the scenes, uh, of the, of the whole private equity arrangement, you know, the, the investors originally saw that this was a potential for, you know, making a massive amount of profit on the surprise billing end. Meanwhile, the clinicians weren't really made aware of this. I wasn't made aware of this and I've only become mm-hmm. made aware of this in the last, you know, couple of years, three years since uh, I'm no longer really a part of any of it. Um, I, I didn't sign up for that. You know, it, to me, it's, it, it, to me, it's, it, it's an, it's an ethics violation, you know, as a physician, um, I didn't, I did not sign up to take good care of a patient and have them get a surprise bill and then have the majority of that income generated from that surprise bill go to someone else. Because uh, it, it, it's a huge surprise when a patient gets a bill for a colonoscopy that only lasts 30 minutes of $1,000 due to balance right. billing. Right. Okay, so I'm not getting that $1,000. I, I mean, I'm getting, right. I'm getting a pittance. So someone else is earning that money, and, but the patients don't see it that way. So the bottom line is, guess what? I'm the scapegoat. Well, they just think this doc's. Oh, he does ten of these a day. He's making a thousand. Oh, good lord, he's he's making ten thousand dollars in one day. Right. No, not even close. You know, I mean, and yeah. that and that's that's the whole thing. We're the face to medicine, CRNAs, the MDs, the nurses, everyone else. They don't realize that there's there are middle people in there 
who have, are taking a lot off the table and they're doing it in a way that's, that's really unethical. So uh, that's my issue. Earlier you said, earlier you said, where's the value? And I think that's the, that's the question, right? Where certainly there's very big projects, very big organizations, which require large amounts of capital. I don't think anyone would debate that. But right. you know, these, these these groups that just extract um, money out of a system that's kind of starving, it's like that, that feels unbalanced. Um, and certainly on the show, we've had people with private equity backgrounds, they give a, a different view as well. But I think what you're describing especially is very troubling, right? That it's, 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 it's just, it's not working <laughs> to say the least. Uh, well, I want to go back to well, this. No, this oh, I mean, please go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, let's, uh, you know, I, I want to rip the curtains off of what private equity is in healthcare. The bottom line is mm-hmm. they're going in there. They want to make as much money as they can shell it out mm-hmm. and sell it for cheap period. At the end of the day, that's what private equity is doing in healthcare. And mm-hmm. most Americans have absolutely no awareness of, of, of what's going on with regards to this. Just like most Americans don't understand that Medicare Advantage plans are making BUCA, mm-hmm. the Blue Clauses, the United Healthcare Groups, the Cygnas and the Aetnas, billions of dollars, not millions, billions of dollars in profits collectively. Yep. And it's not talked about because it's it's a dirty little secret that is obviously complicitly supported by Congress. There you have it. You know, mm-hmm. I'll just say it right out loud. And it's ugly, it's dirty, but it's the truth. I mean, that's what's happening. So, <laughs> um, and I think even across, no other, across society, uh, we're this is we're going broad here now, but we're experiencing wealth gaps. Right, you, the the, the oh, gap absolutely. between right. the average American and right. the very wealthy is becoming wider and wider, and part of that is absolutely you know it's the it's the Matthew principle, right? Those who have get more, and over time it just becomes a weaker and weaker economy for more and more people. What's most right. and this is my personal view here, but what's most troubling to me is when you see private equity groups buying up houses, things that. You know, it's the American dream to own your own home, build wealth, build equity in your home, right? Maybe pass that on. And now we're seeing swaths of neighborhoods and towns being bought up because they have so much money. It's like they, they're they just looking. Right. Uh, uh, now I'm getting it. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting, we're going down a rabbit hole. But I think it speaks to the right, idea right. of when you have money, you exert control, you exert influence. Again, not demonizing individuals or groups like the one you were part of. But saying this is bringing it to a whole nother level and some really important, some, some deep ethical questions have to be asked about this and if it's sustainable right. or good, right? The system's out of balance, well, right? Well, it, it is. And I, I think that what we have is unsustainable and unethical at the end of the day. I mean, we have to mm-hmm. kind of envision our future state with what's currently going on. And it's not really very pretty, to be honest with you. So, no, um, it's it's not. And, it and feels it, it just it's not right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it feels like it's slowly breaking again. You know, not you know, people have to make individual decisions. They got to do what's right for them. But it's not a good thing, right? And uh, we've got to figure out how yeah. to do it differently. And that's uh, I'm I can very much empathize. And you and I have spoken on other levels as well. And that's part of the reason. You know, when I'm old, I hope to uh, you know. Probably not like yourself. You hope you do a little good in the world, and I feel good right. about being part of a group that has, has values that are aligned with what we're talking about. Um, right. To get back to this mental health conversation, right? To to zoom back in, so to speak, there does seem to be two conversations going on in society. Right. There's the David Goggins, stay hard, right? Like be tough, be really tough, and be really resilient. And then there's the, you know, we need to make a lot of room for our mental health. How do you find balance between those? Especially as a physician, I think in physician world, there's a culture of, you know, there's workaholicism, I think it's probably fair to say. Um, How do you find balance between... Without question. Yeah. And and certainly there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice, et cetera. How do you find that balance between 
what is necessary, that grit that is necessary for long-term goals, as Angela Duckworth describes, versus right. you got to sharpen the sword. You got to make room for mental health. How do you find that balance? How do you encourage others to do it? Well, you know what? I, I, I believe that work-life balance is a misnomer. It doesn't exist. I, I like mm. to think of it as work-life integration. Does, does, does what you do professionally and the amount of time you spend professionally um, integrate with what you need personally and the time you need to spend with your family personally and every other thing that you like to do hobby-wise, et cetera? There are physicians who, frankly, most of the pleasure out of their life is by going to work and, and putting in 60, 70 hours is what they need to do to be happy. There are others who, you know, putting in more than 40 is troubling because they have so much other stuff that they want to do with their lives. So I, I think that the work-life balance thing, it's, it's a misnomer insofar as um, each individual has their own needs. What if you have health issues? What if you're, what if you're struggling with, you know, uh, uh, certain personal problems? I mean, and mm -hmm. the thing is, it's dynamic. When you're younger, you have more energy, you have more enthusiasm, and you're willing to put in more time as you get older. You know, when you're 65, 68 years old, for example, do you really want to be doing call five times a month? Do you really want to be working mm. 60 hours a month? Some physicians, yes, that's great. I think they're in a minority, and a majority would like to slow down and, and take time to enjoy what they've done and do other things. So, um I, I really think that it's the inflexibility that's been created now by corporate medicine that has helped contribute to burnout. Because when, you know, private practices existed, I mean, and I even had this down in Tucson, for example, I had partners who worked three days a week, two days a week. Some didn't take mm -hmm. call. I mean, there were, there, there were a myriad of different numbers of of different employment arrangements and everyone kind of understood it. Certainly if you worked less, didn't take call, you earned less. I mean, that that's just the bottom line, but yeah, I sure. think that corporate medicine with the shortage of providers and, and people able to do the work, they've kind of like uh, put this cookie cutter uh, one size fits all approach. Okay. Well, if you're going to be employed with us, you're going to work this, you're going to take this many days of call. If you can't do it fine, um, we're not going to employ you. And some of them done the bait and switch. Oh, yeah, we'll accommodate you, blah, blah, blah. They sign the contract. It's not written. The call requirements. Next thing you know, you've got someone who said, wait a second, I didn't really sign up for this. And then they end up quitting. So um, I, I think for each physician or each, you know, whoever's providing health needs to understand that. They need to find an environment that is going to be suitable for them to basically make themselves satisfied. I don't like to use the word happy because I, I think that's mm. something else, but satisfied mm. with their career. And are they able to accomplish what they want in their career? And are they able to be available to their family and friends and whatever else is important to them? And this is all individual. I mean, you know, uh, I, for example, I'm not burned out. I'm not a burned out physician. And I often ask myself why I'm not burned out. And <laughs> I think it's, I think it's due to the fact that number one, I'm super curious. I like to be busy and I love the OR. I love my students. I love my patients. I love the environment of healthcare. And that's my passion, you know, and I'm passionate about it. Not everyone feels the same way I do. And if you don't feel this way, it's, 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 not, it's not a fault. It's just that this does not work for you. You know, mm -hmm. some people have gone into medicine because they can earn a great living and make a difference. They don't want to do it more than 40 hours a week. They don't necessarily want to teach. They don't want to do research. They don't sure. want to, you know, make a big difference. They just want to do that and nothing more. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that that should be respected. Conversely, a guy like me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like a great white shark. Just keep feeding me, you know, just make sure that I'm fed and I'm going to be happy. Sure. And, um, 
that do you understand what I mean by that? It's like, and I need that kind of the constant stimulation about what's next and what's new and what's cool and where are we going? So. Yeah, I um, think, uh, you know, it reminds me of that aphorism, you know, those who enjoy their work, never work a day in their life. Right. Yeah. Warren Buffett said it. Yeah, yeah, right. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, you know, I, the way I've heard it said lately is I'm always working and I'm never working because I enjoy what I do. So right. it's just, you know, it's just, just taking yeah. on challenges, solving challenges and going from there. And I think like going back to your original point, when you involved in healthcare, it does add a level of passion because you're taking care of human beings. Uh, I want to go to, you know, we started the conversation around that article back in, in 2018 there's a obviously there's a shortage going on. Uh, there's a saying in some parts of the world, uh, there's not a shortage of anesthesia providers. There's a shortage of, of people doing anesthesia. Right. And that saying is alluding to very restrictive models. And whenever there's shortages, there's pension. Right. So I think you have a really unique perspective on this. What would you say well, the- to de- departments across you know, just your random community department that's struggling with shortages, anesthesia models, et cetera. What do you say to them to help them, you know, alleviate that shortage and or alleviate some of the tension that goes on between professions? Have an open mind. That's the bottom Mm -hmm. line. Look at the data, look at the outcomes. Um, you know, what, 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 what was very interesting for me was uh, when I was in northern Minnesota in Bemidji, you know, we, we the, of course, the CRNAs could practice independently. They did all their own in-house call. And, uh, you know, when, when I was coming in daily work, when I was on call, I did pre-ops along with my 24-hour in-house CRNA. And we both did pre-ops. We all did blocks. Um, we, were, we were really, really interchangeable. And then the CRNAs and MDs each had their own room assignments. So I did my own mm-hmm. cases still, just like I did most of my career while I was up there in Minnesota. Um, the proof was in the pudding after four years. Our outcomes mm-hmm. were no different. You know, we, we all had struggles and problems. And, and I think at the end of the day, here's, here, here's the, the, big, the big thing that matters. Do you have enough clinical judgment to know when you're over your head and you need to ask for help? Mm. And nearly all of us did, both MDs and CRNAs, especially in that setting. And, you know, our outcomes for stroke, MIs, et cetera, complications were less than the national average, Mm. um, which didn't really surprise me. We had a strong core group of both uh, MDs and CRNAs. Now, granted, we are in a small community where we're doing mainly bread and butter cases. We're not doing hearts. We're not doing transplants, a lot of thoracic, big vascular cases, et cetera. In, in those types of settings, I think that just having someone around to help out, regardless of who it is, is really, really helpful. And, you know, I, today I was working with one of my residents and I was working with a CRNA student too. And I said, you, you guys have to understand that what's really nice about being here in this setting is at 2 a.m., I'm not getting a patient on BiPAP who's morbidly obese with a, with a blood pressure of 80 over 40 who needs mm. an X-lap. Because one of the last cases I did before I left Tucson was exactly that. At 2.30 in the morning, I got a phone call. I was on call. And I uh, had to drive down to St. Mary's in Tucson. And my patient was tripoding in the ICU on BiPAP, needed an X-lap, had a bowel perf. I'm by myself. So I'm sitting here staring at this whole thing and thinking, yeah, I've got to take care of this patient without killing them. I really, really, really would have loved to have had one of my partners to come in and just help me get lines, help me with the airway if it was difficult um, and and that sort of thing. So I, I really think that an environment where we're all available to help out each other and know that we're highly trained to do so is what's best for patient care, you know, and everyone kind of operate at the top of their game. Um, there are practices in Minnesota that are all CRNA, for example. Okay, if it was a problem, they wouldn't exist. That's 
the whole point. If it was a problem, they wouldn't exist, but they do, which means that it's not a problem. So, um, I, I, and I just believe we need to work together and respect each other and our skill sets. The, the big thing for me is CRNA students have gone through the ring of fire. They've become, they, they were trained in the ICU. Uh, the academic requirements and the expectations for CRNAs to go to training is exceptionally high. Um, I can't say that for other APPs and I don't want to put them down. But course, there's a big yeah. difference between on the ground, you know, trial by fire ICU training versus online stuff. I, I just, that's the big difference that I see that's going on. Um, now, corporate medicine sees it differently. They just see the title. Can you do the job? Boom, go do it. Uh, regardless of experience, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, my, I mean, my experience, my experience with CRNAs, from when I was a trainee was incredibly positive. And I think that's what really influenced my attitude, if you will, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. my philosophy, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I really, I really don't have much more to say about that. It's just, I have an incredible amount of respect as long, as long as everyone involved, regardless of whether an MD or CRNA, is patient focused, recognizes their limits, and uses good clinical judgment and knows their skill set. That's it. At the end of the day, yeah, and that's the um, hallmark. You know, of a, that's the hallmark of any professional. That's the hallmark of a professional right. is knowing your limits, yeah. right? A lot of yeah, professional absolutely. practices, whether it's accounting or law, they'll when you look at the little shingle, you'll note that it says, you know, practice limited to X, right? Because that's that's right. good professional practice. I, I think it's been an interesting theme in the conversation. Uh, distinguishing between corporatization of medicine, massive private equity groups versus local solutions, local groups, because a lot of what you described, right, whether a practice works in uh, one area versus another, those are local decisions, right? Because you have to know oh, the people. <laughs> right. You have to know the people you're working with. And it sounds like you really right. did. In the, in the place you were up north. And uh, yeah, that's, I think that's, there's wisdom there and making sure decisions are made locally. And we're not just taking, I, I think the thing which, you know, drives me on a personal level crazy is like, well, you have, you know, whether it's private equity or any, any other group, it's like you have X name and, or X letters behind your name. And then therefore, you know, this is true forever and ever until the end of time. Right. So like, that's not a good way to right. run things. Well, no, I mean, and, you know, the, the reality is, I mean, it's like, you know, I tell my residents as students, it's like at this point in my career, six years after leaving Tucson, I've got an alphabet letter soup thing after my name and I'm finishing my executive MBA in the next week after, you know, it's oh, an accelerated thing. And, well, no, it's, yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And people ask me, well, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? I said, well, I had gaps in economics, finance, and accounting. My master's in healthcare administration didn't really teach me about that. And I think it's important for me to know about that. And so I decided, what the heck, I'll just go do this and just to get that knowledge base and, you know, address my own, recognize my own ignorance. If, if you know what I mean, it's, it's recognized that the gaps, in, in your knowledge uh, need to be filled in order for you to completely have a, you know, a comprehensive view of what's going on. And that's what I've gone and done. So it's not that I'm dumb. It's just that, listen, you're ignorant in this area and you can learn about this. That way you can talk about this on a level that's at least understood. So you don't look like an idiot when you ask a question, if you will, if you're in a large meeting or that sort of thing. But uh, you know, it, it's, um, you know, back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this whole podcast, too, is, you know, you were asking me about physics and the English and everything else. And I think that, um, you know, what drives me is forever remain curious, forever understand that you don't know everything. And it's just about self-improvement and self-education. And 
it's something that I encourage my residents and students to do. I said, you're in a particular program and there's a stop date. It's, you know, June 30th of two years from now, or you're going to be done in six months. I said, but you have to understand that the learning never stops. The investment in your growth never stops. The investment in doing better never stops until you're done, done, done. And if you have that philosophy, all kinds of interesting doors are going to swing open and you're going to have a really cool life. Now, the younger generation, this is the one thing I've noticed is the fire thing. Financial independence, retire early. I don't get it. I I just don't get it. Um, And the reason I don't get it is because that means you don't really enjoy what you're doing. You're just trying to stuff a bunch of money in the bank and then, you know, go surfing or do whatever the heck it is you really, really are passionate about. So in healthcare, I think that it takes a certain personality to be dedicated to what this means to be in healthcare um, and understand that this is a special type of career. We're not, we're not selling cars. We're not selling iPhones. We're not selling insurance. And I'm not saying that that's not important, but at the end of the day, let's be honest. If a guy doesn't sell a car on Monday, does it make a difference to anyone else? Mm-hmm. No. If I boggle an anesthetic on a Monday afternoon, does it make a difference? Yeah, it could potentially be life-changing for someone else. Yeah. And so the stakes Indeed. are high. And so the stress is high. The reward is high. But at the end of the day, my purpose for what I do is built into what I do. And that keeps me from being burned out. So I always stay kind of, I've always, I stay focused on the fact that medicine and providing healthcare and providing what I do for others and teaching all of my purpose is built into what I do every single day. And I stay focused on that. I just, like I said, I kind of drown out the noise. It's like, okay, that's just nonsense. That's part of the system. Let's stay focused on what's going on in front of me. And, and it's a wonderful way to exist in this career. It's absolutely wonderful. So I love what I do. That, you that's know. a great spot. We're going to leave it right there. Dr. Mazurk, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak again. Thank you all for turning into Anesthesia Deconstructed. I am your host, Joe Rodriguez, alongside Mike McKinnon. Thanks to our producer, Adkins Media. If you enjoyed our conversation today, we truly appreciate if you could leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That feedback helps us bring more value to our listeners. And if you have any questions, topics you'd like us to delve into, or direct feedback on an episode, don't hesitate to send us an email or direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Onward, friends. Thanks for listening.